Harbors Magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at mainboats.com. Radio WERU wouldn't let our 20th anniversary pass without exception, so we invite you to help kick off a year-long celebration of this great community resource. Visit WERU in East Orland on Thursday, May 1st, to see the studios where it all happens. Meet volunteers and staff, take a station tour, browse through an archive of photographs and print materials, enjoy great food and dance to great music. While you're here, pick up a limited edition 20th anniversary logo item and stop by the new and used CD sale downstairs. The live music starts at 2 p.m., so plan to join us at the station located at 1186 Acadia Highway in East Orland. That's Route 1 between Ellsworth and Bucksport near Toddy Pond. For directions or more information, call WERU at 469-6600 or email info at weru.org. And we'll see you at the party on May 1st. This hour of Boat Talk is made possible in part by Gamble and Hunter Sailmakers, making sales for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main windjammers for over 20 years. Near the harbor in Camden, gambleandhunter.net. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. It's uh, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, a Tuesday morning, second Tuesday of the month. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 102.9 in Bangor. Time to launch another edition of Boat Talk. That's your uh, own radio call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. Boat Talk is the uh, only radio show that's been proven to occasionally cause mooring sickness. <laughs> He's the punny one, Tom. Uh, you know, that's just how it is. We have a whole list of things, to, a whole raft of things to go through today. Mike, why don't you uh, introduce our guest? Yeah, we have Tom Gillen from Millbridge in this morning, and I uh, found a book at the Ellsworth uh, Public Library, Drops of Spray from the Southern Seas, Lucy Brown Reynolds. This was first written in uh, 1896, and Tom has uh, caused it to be republished. I just found it to be delightful, and we'll talk about the uh, golden days of uh, you know being a main captain and, and sailing around the world with your family, basically, and uh, the adventures they had. And it's just a delightful little book, and uh, we'll say good morning, Tom. Good morning, Alan. Yeah. Welcome, uh, Tom. Thanks very much for helping me here, today, yeah. guys. Appreciate it. You're a, uh, we haven't talked too much about this either, but you were in the Navy, you were a submar- submariner, submariner, how do we say that? Either way, I guess it goes. Uh-huh. Back in the 60s. No kidding. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll talk about that too, and who knows what else, it's boat talk. Uh, Tom's come with a pile of stuff, he's, he's uh, raring to go, all kinds of stuff to share, we'll, we'll read a little bit here, and uh, you know, we uh, always kind of run boat talk a little loose, let's see what happens, and uh as always, we're, we're uh, forever interested in you wandering by and kicking the keel, as they call it, in the boatyard, and, and we'll pretty much interrupt ourselves at, at any time if you want to give us a call. The number to call is whoa, 1-866-625-9378. 1-866-625-9378. We'll get you right here in the Boat Talk. We can talk about most anything that floats your boat. Yeah, like to uh, often start off with a uh, roundup of, of uh, different news items that have uh, come come uh, by over the last month since Botox. I notice here from uh, the Bob Bangor Daily News that the Maine Maritimes Academy Schooner Bowden is going to uh, go north this summer, uh, starting around June 1st. They're going a 60-day voyage north of the Arctic Circle. They're going to go back to where uh, Admiral McMillan used to hang out. They're going to go as far as Jacobshaven, Greenland. And uh, 
they'll be uh, way north of the Arctic Circle. That's what that boat was built for. Yeah, it went uh, 25 trips, uh, you know, built in 1921, did 25 trips. Um, you know, and now uh, Maine Maritime has it, and they use it as a sail training vessel. Yeah, so it's a, be going it's a rugged built boat. There's yes, so little room below, there's only room for one bunk. Yeah. Uh, that's not quite true, but <laughs> she is pretty rugged. She's a very interesting boat. You can go down to Castine and put your eyes on her any time. The Maine State Ferry Service is going to have a 12.5% fare hike. Go figure why that might be. Uh, yeah. Price of gas has gone up quite a bit. Did you know that there's a uh, two-tier schedule for fares on the ferry? Uh, they say here that if they had to run it on fares alone, they'd have to double their prices. They get... Uh, uh, underwriting uh, matching grants from the uh, Maine Department of Highways. There's a two-tier system. You pay differently if you're an islander or if you're a tourist on the Maine State Ferry. And uh, prices are bound to go up about uh, 12.5%, I guess. And once again, you figure out why that could be. Back in November of 2007, we all voted for a uh, $3 million bond for working waterfront access programs which on Boat Talk we would just presume is a good thing, you know, and the first grant has come down to the Port Clyde's Fishermen's Co-op. They've been rewarded uh, with $340,000 for a pier expansion. And, uh, you know, uh, we're all in favor of more piers and, and more work in waterfront. Yes, it's, uh, it's valuable property, and fishermen are going to be... Running out of it pretty soon if it keeps, uh, the market keeps up. Well, here's another interesting story from the Bangor Daily News. Speaking of fishing, uh, it says that the lobster catch in 2007 was down 23%. Sounds like a tale to me. Your wife doesn't <laughs> let you make, make puns, does she? But, of course, no. we, we're just... We just uh, no, I, I know several lobstermen, and they're all moaning. Not only has the, the catch gone down, the price of fuel for them also has gone up. It's, no, uh, just a big factor as well. Um, the, uh, yeah, the loss is uh, figured at almost $50 million at the price this year. price was up a little bit uh, for, let's say, 4.43 a pound this year, uh, 4.08 the year before. But the catch was down by as much as, uh, well, Hancock County, where we're sitting right now, led the way in uh, catch decline. Catch was down 31% in Hancock County. Waldo County leads the state of Maine in uh, lobster landings, and their catch was only down uh, 21%. So uh, not a good year for lobsters last year. We've been talking about it quite a bit, um, about the lobster and thing. I think the water's changing. You know, a good friend of mine that I help on their uh, boat occasionally up in Millbridge area, and uh, he noted that friends of his up in Nova Scotia, he said, where they used to not see as much catch, they're increasing as we're decreasing. So mm. you have to wonder about the global warming thing happening. Yeah. North is moving real. north. Yeah. I do a lot of boat deliveries. I uh, sail, you know, south of here all the time, and uh, in Massachusetts and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Long Island, uh, Buzzards Bay waters, the uh, fishing traps have gone away. There just aren't any. Uh, there's a few, yeah. but they've really gone away, and three-quarters of the boys are out of business, and, and uh, some of the lobsters they do catch come up with black shell disease. You can still eat them, but you don't want to look at them, yeah. you know, and... Uh, I think it's coming this way. I really do. Uh, the water's warming up. Things are changing. We now have, uh, oh, what do you call them, uh, oh, uh, shipworms here now, which is, you know, uh, historically, uh, maybe not so much in the past, and, and I think things are changing. So the Maine lobster fishery is a huge, huge deal on the coast of Maine here, and, uh, you know, we take great pains about the conservation of it. And uh, 80% or uh, I think above that nowadays, 80% or more of the uh, United States lobster fishery is, is uh, concentrated in the coast of Maine. So, uh, you know, uh, is things changing or not? Speaking of that, uh, another one of our little favorite things on Boat Talk is called the uh, lobster trap video. They, scientists got wondered what goes on in a lobster trap. I mean, who knows? It's underwater. You can't see it. So they put, a lo they put a video camera in a lobster trap, and they uh, put it on the bottom of the ocean, and they watched it. With a, they made a tape, and uh, they got a little, uh, uh, little red light down there to illuminate things. And, and uh, they found out, much to their surprise, that lobsters fairly much attack the traps as soon as they hit the bottom. And they enter and exit pretty much at will at and will. fight over the bait. Ninety-six percent of lobsters enter and exit pretty much at will. You call that a trap? Is <laughs> <laughs> what they said, you know. So anyway, this came up in the news again uh, just recently. We're all, uh, you know, uh, big fans of what happens in Washington, D.C. and the Congress and everything. And, 
and uh, they had this year their uh, pork awards for people, you know, giving the inappropriate earmarks and stuff, bridges to nowhere and, and little problems like that that they you're morally. That. They come up this year and, and one of the pork awards celebrated the lobster trap video and given um, money to the Lobster Institute, I believe it was, was uh, brought up just recently in a little ceremony in uh, Washington, D.C. And we're kind of in favor of that. So it's hard to say. Pork or lobster? Well, they compare the two sometimes, don't they? That's um, true. Right, the other white, the other white meat. So, uh, you know, we also have up uh, help out at the uh, Millbridge Historical Society, and on the uh, Millbridge Historical Society website, you can go to that and take a virtual lobster trip tour. Very you interesting. Know, a day on the boat, see a lobster coming back in. What it takes to get that fancy lobster dinner in front of you. Excellent. Mm. More than you anticipate, needless to say. Excellent. Somebody will come up and pinch you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We've uh, <laughs> already discussed, too, with Tom, we'll be linking to the Millbridge Historical uh, Site. Uh, more about that later. Here's some uh, passenger ship news, uh, cruise ship lines. Uh, two new big boats are going to come into Rockland this year, and there were 20 cruise ship visits to Rockland last year, but these are big boats, and uh, these two boats will probably double the passengers coming through, uh, cruise ship passengers coming through Rockland this year. It is getting to be a fairly good business on the coast of Maine. There is legislation that was put up by uh, people from Hawaii that talk about uh, what flag vessels, most of these, of course, are not U.S. flag vessels, can visit U.S. ports without making a foreign stop in between. This is a uh, regulation uh, put through by people from Hawaii who want to uh, reward a certain company out there, which has an American flag on it, which may affect cruise ships coming to Maine, and more about that later. But anyway, there were uh, 106 cruise ship visits in Bar Harbor last year and a couple of dozen in Portland, and like, say, uh, you know, 20-odd in Rockland as well, becoming quite a big business. Here's another really interesting one. We're all in favor of this. There's a, uh organization called, uh, what is it called, uh, Main Built Boats, and they have a website, MainBuiltBoats.com. They had Jerry Jacobson. He's a uh, famous America's Cup sailor, uh, author, you know, uh, yachting commentator, as they say here. He just made a tour down east and made some videos. He went to the Brooklyn Boatyard, French and Webb down in Belfast, hauling boat in Belfast, landing school in Kennebunk, and Sabre Yachts in uh, Casco. And they are making uh, little videoettes that they're going to put up on the main builtboats.com website to promote main boat building and they want to get a little web going there so well that's mm. that's a very poor pun on my part but uh, they are trying to um, you know they're trying to link it all together which is uh, again we're all in favor of that now speaking of boat builders um, the uh, North Star Alliance initiative and uh, they just got a grant last year we uh, uh, we've talked about that in the future they got a $15 million grant from the U.S. Department of Labor. They've come out with a uh, survey of uh, Maine boat builders, and they talked to 99 of them. And among other things, they pointed out that uh, high coastal property values and a shortage of skilled workers, workers with specialized skills, are hang-ups for them. And we're, we're, of course, all in favor of the boat school down here. I have something to say about that in just a second. Well, Tom's also going to be talking about boat workers and how many more there were back then than there are now, too. Yeah. Um, it says here that uh, most companies showed uh, increases in the revenue growth out of these 99 boat builders. Uh, 52% grew between 1% and 10%. 38% grew as much as 11% more. And the other, uh, I forget how many, uh, 15% here were more or less uh, neutral or so. Two-thirds of these 99 boat builders added employees in the last two years. The, uh, again, the industry is kind of healthy at the present time. Some people allege that the rich are getting richer, and, uh, you know, maybe that's a good thing for it boat does, builders. It does seem like the, especially the high-end boat builders are doing the best. Doing pretty good, uh, yeah, which is uh, kind of interesting. Now, the boat school had a little feature piece in uh, yesterday's Bangor Daily News in the state section, and they have uh, 10 students down there right now who are building uh, Whitehalls, wooden, uh, you know, little lapstrake uh, pulling boats. And they just turned them over on the jig when the Bangor Daily News was there. And they're very excited to look underneath. And our friends uh, Brett Blanchard and, uh, oh, uh, I'll think of his name in a second here. But anyway, uh, Dean Pike. Yeah. We talk to Dean all the time down there. Really excited about next year's class. They're talking about as many as 30 students down there next year. 
they uh, have turned the place around. Uh, in 2005, I guess it was, they were about to pack it up. There was no more money. They were kind of falling into a little hole where the, the students weren't coming through, and, and the place was just um, administratively neglected, if not otherwise, you know, and, and that's all been turned around now. So the boat school is kind of going great guns at the present time. They had an open house the other day. Um, here's another little cute item here, and that uh, they've partnered up with Ray's Mustard, a very famous uh, eSport company. They, be, they make a stone ground oh, yeah. mustard. I've had it. It's good mustard. Oh, you go go to Eastport. You've got to go out so on one of the back uh, roads just out of the town there. You've got to go visit the little red house where they make the raised mustard and sample some. It's just pretty neat in, in, uh, little uh, you know operation there. But they've come out in, in uh, conjunction with the boat building school. They've come out with a uh, mustard that they've labeled, and uh, the boat building school gets to give it away at shows and, and as uh, you know, little... Uh, Sweetener, I guess, oh, that's not a good pun at all, but anyway. <laughs> Condiment. It's called the Boat Builders Composite Mustard. guess they're Composite trying to spice mustard. up their business some. Yeah, there you go. See, there was one there. It's catching. We're going downhill. <laughs> yeah, you had, uh, you brought in a piece of the newspaper from the that I didn't catch too, didn't you? Yeah, um, actually I just brought it in expecting you to read it because I didn't either. Uh, Atlantic Boat Company is down in Brooklyn. Um, they make, uh, speaking of composites, uh, lobster yachts, fiberglass lobster yachts, and they've sold one that's going to be shipping down to Brazil. So uh, we're talking about the economy, and it seems to be going offshore, too. So I know we've sold boats uh, where I work to people in Scandinavia and Japan. So yeah, it's uh, a world market that we're, we're serving now. It is, and, uh, you know, it's all connected to the oceans. They are the biggest part of the world, and they connect everything, you know, um, which is what I consider really cool about being a sailor. We are doing Boat Talk this morning. It's community radio, and, and uh, I guess that's why we can get away with such a thing. Um, we have Tom Gillen from Millbridge in this morning. We're going to talk about uh, this book from the, uh, 17, uh, from the uh, late 1800s here. And uh, it sort of reflects the, the theme of uh, boat building and uh, globalization. But we want to remind you, before we uh, get too far there, that the number here, once again, one 626 9378 And... Uh, you know, always need to leave room for whatever you're thinking about this morning. You may have a question about uh, something that's not on our radar, and we're glad to glad uh, boat talk. We're playing experts here on the radio this morning. So. One other item is um, people have called up once in a while asking how the uh, school bus conversion is going, and I spoke with Mark Ro- Mark Rorig of uh, background it for just a second. Yep. <clears throat> okay. Um, Mark Rorig is a person of uh, great skill and creativity who has in the past converted cars to be amphibious. And He did a geo. Uh, yeah, a then he went geo. into business fixing uh, uh, automatic power windows. That was his business for a while. That's pretty That's smart, still I Still doing it. What do you do when your power window stops working? So, <laughs> so anyway, he uh, sold that off, and now he's got this ambition to fix up a school bus and well, sail, yeah, sail and drive around the world. Right. Well, that... Uh, Talking to Mark last Saturday has sort of been modified. The school bus is still in Kentucky on the Mississippi River, and Mark has moved to Florida and wants to finish the project, but he's at this point now talking about just taking it for excursions on the Mississippi River. Ohio. Ohio River, wasn't it? Ohio, okay. Yeah, in Kentucky there. Okay. Yeah, launch it in the Ohio River. All right. Whatever river he wants to put in, it might be safer than, than going across the Atlantic or, you know. Yeah, yeah, but... He, Tom's shaking his head something fierce. He's never thought about going across the Atlantic <laughs> in a school in bus. A school bus? School bus. Well, uh, well, I think <laughs> a former submariner, you've got a lot of nerve to criticize somebody going in a different kind of tin yeah, can. school bus sounds like suicide to me. Well, well it could turn into a submarine. He's already, he's already floated it. Um, hasn't, hasn't got the motor part worked out yet, but it, uh, he has pictures of it. It does float. And I think, actually, the, uh, the idea of taking excursions on the river is not that bad. I mean, you could load people at any place in town onto the school bus and then drive right down to the ramp and go onto the river and do your little tour, come back home again. And sounds, that's, like a, sounds like a duck boat. It, exactly. It, yes, and it again, um, so. you know, his his uh, initial scheme, he has an Israeli wife, I believe, and, and apparently she's too smart to cross oceans, but she'd like to drive across Turkey, say. You know, and uh, she'll join him for the parts that are, that are you know, on land. And the idea is to, uh, again, a land and water tour uh, bus. 
Yeah. Tour yeah. bus, yes. Yeah, uh, she realized the chances of sinking are much less when it's on land. And we talked about with Mark about that, and uh, it's come up with the r- whole raw faith thing, the uh, self-described, uh, self-built galleon for handicap uh, accessibility down uh, now under Port Arrest in Rockland Harbor. And and boats are so much about dreams, you know, and, and that's Mark's dream. And, and we even sort of, uh, Mark, this could kill you. And he says, yeah. He says, but I just soon go live in my dream as... You know, mm-hmm. I guess fixing power windows in a in a dark garage somewhere. So um, yeah. you kind of have to respect that. And our friend Giffy Full, the noted marine surveyor, who's Giffy's uh, still away for the winter. We have Giffy as guest host whenever whenever he's around. Uh, Giffy started off uh, as one of my favorite boat talk moments. Uh, brought in some stuff. Says, Giffy, we're going to talk to this guy this morning. Uh, Giffy looked at it. He says, you're not going to like to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> and we uh, chatted him up. And Mark has experience. He can talk about welding the differential on sideways and coming off with a fratus. You know, he knows what he's talking about there. And at the end, Giffy wished him luck and says, we'll see, which was, again, the fun of the boat there. So Mm -hmm. he kind of won him over. And, and again, we're hanging it on a dream. And uh, maybe you got some boat dreams this morning. Give us a call. Anytime, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. 625 Mark and the we'll see thing do have a... um a website, if you're interested in going to see just what this looks like, all you have to do is look up Amphigeo Story. That's A-M-P-H-I-G-E-O Story.com. And there's all kinds of information and pictures there of Mark's project. So, Tom, let's get around to your book. Well, I call it your book, and you probably should correct that. Right. Lucy Brown Reynolds actually wrote it back in 1896. And uh, I became interested in it really when it first, uh, at the Millbridge Historical Society, we had had a, uh, on the uh, Tuesday evening meetings that they have there uh, once a month, and they went into it. And I said, you know, one of the ladies there had an original copy. There were a few out in town there. You can find them occasionally. And had a chance to read it and literally could not put it down. And it's one of these uh, uh, books that at the end of it you say, you know, this can't be buried for all time, really should be resurrected. And at the time, though, the uh, Historical Society wasn't necessarily interested in getting into publishing, so I sort of picked it up and ran with it, basically. And there's a whole bunch of technical geek stuff that goes on to, you know, get something like that from 1896. How do you get it to modern-day print without, you know, breaking the bank, so to speak, too? And... uh, Basically, we you know, got it back out and have uh, put it back out for sale, you know, both at the Historical Society when that opens and as well as there's a gift store right next to the Millbridge Historical Society that's available year-round at the Cinnamon Stick. And uh, the book itself, it just, you know, Mike, you know, I'm sure you can appreciate it, just sort of blows you away when you get into it and reading it. It's very readable. I found it at the Ellsworth Library and... Uh, a, a book with a boat on the cover, I take it whether I think I might like it or not, okay? And I looked at this, and I thought, well, you know, this will probably be interesting, but i got a bunch of other really interesting stuff. Then I picked it up, and it starts off, uh, I was born in the prosperous town of Millbridge, Maine, situated on the Narragwagus River, five miles from the open sea, and to me, the dearest place on earth. My father was a sea captain, James Brown by name, who always went on deep-sea voyages, and who, unlike the majority of captains, was glad to have his family accompany him. And uh, the thing is just completely readable. It's uh, very sweetly told. These people are very cosmopolitan. They get all over, the not all over the world, uh, South America, the Caribbean, uh, the Pacific, and and all over the Pacific, um, trading here and there. And uh, Daddy's a ship owner and the captain. And, and, uh, again, just a very, very readable book. Very much enjoyed it. Looked in the uh, thing, saw, you know... uh, your name in here and published by Lulu, and I couldn't figure out how, how uh, such a thing happened, and I found you in the phone book, called you up. So here we right, are. Right. Yeah, the, I think the parts that always you know, blow my mind away are is I, I'm in the book, I'm reading the book, which I do every so often just to you know, go back and reread it. It's that good of a book on it. But at the same time, you're reading it and you're saying, one side of your mind is saying, this is, can't be real, it's got to be fiction. And then you, you, you stop back, you draw back, and you say, no, wait a minute, this is the real deal. These people basically out of Millbridge, which was a you know, very large shipbuilding industry, I'll get into in a little bit here too, uh, they sailed those things around the world. They didn't have all the fancy navigation, the GPS, radar, 
warnings about typhoons and cyclones and hurricanes coming up. They just plowed straight on through those. And these boats, basically, the, the boat that this book mainly goes into that Captain Brown, uh, Lucy's father, uh, purchased, he bought shares in it in 1882. And the actual boat was, uh, I'll find it here in some of my stuff, actual boat was built six years uh, previously, basically. Like I said, he liked taking his family around. Lucy loved sailing. And you'd get some of these mountainous seas, and she just kind of enjoyed it. She loved it, but her sister Annie hated it. Her sister Annie went once and then stayed home with Grandma. Exactly. She didn't want any part of it. Yeah, it was kind of... Now, let's, uh, let's start off by putting it in historical uh, perspective here. Lucy Brown Reynolds was uh, born in 1870, you know, down in Millbridge, Maine there. And as she says, a very prosperous little village. Yes. She says some years they were launching as many as four ships into the river there in Millbridge. Yep, exactly. They, uh, they went back through um, shipbuilding in Millbridge really was like between 1848 and 1937. The Grand Turk was one of the last ones. And, uh, of course, steam is coming into, uh, you know, vogue at that point. So little by little was, you know, dropping back down in the sheer volume of boats. There's a couple of great books back out there. I mean, the, the Historical Society has one, The History of Millbridge, Maine. Another one that's in there that's really good is the Shipyards, uh, uh, Ships of the Millbridge, 1845 to 1984 by E. Philip Sawyer, one of the descendants of one of the larger ones in town, uh, the Sawyer Shipyard. And uh, there's another great book that's out there. It's it's uh, was published in conjunction with the Bangor Daily News, of all things, back in the 30s, and Henry Buxton, Assignment Down East. Huh, never seen that one. It's a good one. You can find them on eBay. And they have a lot of different... Uh, they went up and down east, basically, interviewing and talking to different people. Uh, the... Boats I have here. Where lots of pictures. Yeah, lots of my favorite part. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll lend you this guy, basically. And uh, probably worth interesting, Roger Sawyer, back, he ultimately was young guy, came back to town. The shipyard was sort of in its decline. He thought he could bring it back. And... Uh, it says here uh, in Millbridge, in this assignment down east, found uh, Roger Sawyer, a young University of Maine graduate, had reopened a historic shipyard founded by his grandfather, J.W. Sawyer, nearly 80 years ago, and had built and launched the first genuine pinky schooner to be constructed in Maine for half a century. The pinky glad tidings was built for the Howard I. Chappell, noted marine architect and author of the history of American sailing ships. So in their heyday, they were going... 30, 40 ships in the high time that they were putting these back out. And there was a number of other shipyards in there also. Uh, so it's a, it's a great snippet in some of the history that went back on there with it. The ship in the story, the Illy, basically, she was a bark that was built in 1876 at Sawyer Shipyard by J.W. Sawyer. The owners originally were uh, Simpson and Clapp, and her hauling port was out of New York City. What always interested me is, as I read this book also, a little side, him to get to a ship to sail in New York City. You don't hop on I-95, go down 95, <laughs> take the train or anything like that. You get on the steamer. Everything was water-based, basically. You go and to that's Portland, why Millbridge was right on the main road right in those it. days. And, yeah. and well, we'll talk about where those big houses came from down in Millbridge, because that's what we're talking about this morning. But did you notice that flashing light a minute ago? That's what happens when the phone rings here. Oh, I did not see that. Yeah. yeah. So we do have a phone call. Let's go right to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Thank you. This is Fred in St. George. Hi, Fred. Morning, Fred. And and uh, you uh, answered both my questions about uh, George and about. Uh, well, you're welcome. Good morning, then. The, the bus. And uh, <laughs> I tell you, I just I get a buzz. Uh, I, I get a I listen to your program because it uh, really floats my boat. And uh, speaking of dreams, um, I uh, that movie Field of Dreams. I finally saw it uh, long after to come to the theaters because nominally it was about uh, baseball which I was a disaster at. And, uh, uh, but it, it was about uh, following your dream, and uh, that uh, means a lot to me, and it, uh, it should mean a lot to this country and to this world, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll get back to that uh, before too long. So uh, thanks for the great program and uh, for uh, keeping the dreams alive. 
Thank you, Fred. We'll take that kind of feedback anytime, Fred. Okay. And we've heard from you before, haven't we? Absolutely. Yeah, you become a regular suspect if you ain't careful. Yep. <laughs> oh, keep doing it. Yep. Good morning. All right. Take care. Now, uh, back to boat building for a minute. Um, the Illy was a, a bark, uh, uh, you know, square rigger, and that's what, uh, you know, Captain Brown here was owning and sailing. Um the last of the square riggers were built in uh, Maine in about 1880. Again, Lucy was born in 1870. To me, this was the golden age of, of uh, Maine boat building and trading that she was, she was part of here. After that, they didn't stop building boats, but they tended towards schooners and, of course, fishing boats and everything else that needed uh, to be built here. So anyway, it was, uh, they were competing with the age of steam was coming on. Uh, the British were building iron ships, which were bigger and stronger. And they were uh, basically taking the market away. But, uh, you know, it, it's interesting to me. Like I say, it seems to me that it was the golden age of shipbuilding and, and uh, like I say, ship owning and, and being a captain from, from uh, Searsport or Sedgwick or Millbridge, Maine, you know. Yeah. And that's where those big houses come from. Absolutely. That you see on the side of Route 1 now or down in Sedgwick, which is no longer Brooksville, which is no longer on the road. I had a friend who uh, took a bicycle tour down there. He says, where would all them big houses come from? They're in the middle of nowhere. So they didn't used to be. They're right on the water. That was you know? the highway. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, in the 1870s, they were like 41. Now, Millbridge evidently gets a little bit more difficult because it was lumped together with Harrington. So some of them, and also they weren't registered by the government at some points also. So it's hard to get a you know, good tally of the number of ships that were built there. But the 1880s, they say, saw the largest number of ships registered. That was 42. Um, and 17 of those were more than 100 tons, and eight of those were more than 400 tons. So big that was, boats. That was big stuff. Yeah. 1890 started to see the decline, of course, with 17 ships were built in this decade, 12 of them by the Sawyers again, of which you know they built the Illy. The Illy, by the by, was about 152 feet, 8.8 feet long, by 34.2 double deck, 758 tons with a crew of 10. Yeah. Now, again, place yourself. You're in the South Pacific. You've got mountainous <coughs> seas you're going through, 10 people crewing this thing, and you're plowing right through the middle That's of it. That's not too many people for that I, boat. No. No, and considering uh, one of them's the captain, one of them's the cook, and, yeah, you know, yeah, they don't exactly. usually lay two. Oh, yeah. What uh, another interest uh, thing that interests me greatly about the uh, age of shipbuilding in Maine? You would think that this was all made with Maine trees, and that's just not true. Um, a lot of these shipyards imported their lumber from down south. They they would import white oak, and again, it would come on ships. And uh, they would import white oak. They would import longleaf yellow pine. You know, uh, certainly some local woods were used, but but it wasn't a matter of of. Uh, you know, these ships being built in Maine because of our forests. For instance, uh, by this time, we're talking about 1880, nobody's putting pine trees in for mass. They're using Douglas fir that is shipped around from Oregon, you know. Again, kind of, uh, you know, you just wonder how they did that. They built those boats out on the side of the river with no power tools, basically, um, outside, and, you know, just launched them and then filled them up and sailed around the world. And that's sort of what we're talking about this morning, Lucy Brown's story. So, um... She uh, goes off cruising with uh, Dad and, and her mother, her actual mother. Right. Uh, they head down to Cuba, and Mom gets sick, you know. And Yeah, her mother, Laura, she uh, uh, born in 1850, basically, and, and died in 1882 on one of their trips, basically. Yeah. They uh, came back to San Francisco, and they had to, you know, bring her back home to Millbridge, basically, cross-country at that point on it. So, I mean, you know, again, just... Unbelievable tales of what these people did. A lot of these ports they go into. Uh oh, there's the Cora, Corla, Corala, Cholera. Thank you, Cholera. thank yes. you so much. Exactly. The Yellow Jack is is in yep. ta- you know, and oh, yeah. uh, so anyway, there's a lot of death everywhere. They lose a man off the rigging one night in a storm. You know, yep. no, not possible. Turn around. Oh my yep. God, there he goes. Exactly. You know, I mean, some of the storms. I mean, uh, interesting part here from the book. Let me uh, read a little bit here. Um, let's see, get it. Yeah, they were basically, it was a nice, quiet South Pacific evening. You know, nothing like them when you're back out there on it. And uh, they were sitting on deck in their chairs, listening to the uh, crew singing in Ponda music. Her mother possessed a clear, sweet voice. She was singing. And another thing with this book, I love the way just the, the tone of the writing 
is so it's very very readable yes it is yeah and the speech is a little different from ours but it flows so nicely so basically uh, uh let's see where are we here all right. Scarcely had the last note died away when there came a long morning sigh over the silent ocean, followed by a sharp puff of wind, then silence. Awful, death-like, with the stars disappeared as though through a black curtain had suddenly been drawn over them. Another louder puff. All hands take in sail, Father shouts, springing to the wheel when the man flies to help the rest. Basically, you know... They're right at the edge of a monster storm coming back in. They have no idea. They have no idea. They have a barometer, but, you know. Barometer, but, you know, again, you know, Captain Brown, being at it enough, knows something's happening. React quick. And when then, like, nothing, all of a sudden, they're just being assailed by this uh, monster seas again, rocking and rolling up and down, water over everything. It's, you know... We'll get to Captain Brown's safety record in a few minutes here, which was, was pro- I thought, very impressive yeah. until they wrecked uh, off of Guadalcanal. Right. But anyway, uh, let's talk about their business. Now, Captain Brown was a ship owner and a captain. Mm-hmm. Um, he was of a fairly prosperous class of people. He traveled the world on his, on his own investments. And uh, while they were traveling the world, they, uh, let's say they would uh, uh, start in Boston with a load of trade goods, uh, anything from mowing machines, haying machines to to uh sewing machines, uh any kind of thing. General let's cargo. take let's take it off to Australia. We land in Australia, now we're in Australia with an empty boat. We got to find something else to carry. Well, there's some coal in Newcastle that might need to go to Fiji or somewhere, right. you know. Let's load up there and basically they they uh, uh, take a load, and then they start looking for another one. Right. Uh, a lot of uh, – they were called uh, general goods with all the – anything from uh, beads to uh, mowers to, you know, like you named, you know, anything. Uh, right on to uh, a load full of sulfur, coal, sugar, raw sugar was another one they had done. You know, yeah. They just – anything and everything you pick up and go. And, you know, during these uh, voyages, I mean, he bought shares in the Ely in 1882 basically on it. And, uh, you know, took the family, and that's what this whole story really is about, Lucy's, you know, that one pretty large voyage. Because, I mean, they had gone before to uh, Germany, I think it was, also. And then, of course, Cuba. And then, you know, down, oh, let's take Chile, off and sail. Peru. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, let's take off and sail out to Australia. No big deal. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's a finite planet here, and it is round. So, anyway, mm-hmm. they... Uh, what they were carrying would uh, uh, say a lot about where they went, and they would go big places and small, Sydney, Australia, or a tiny little mining uh, hut camp in Peru, you yeah. know, where it's just breakers and yeah. lighters. You know what I found interesting out. also on it was they would get into Sydney or any of these other ports. You could tell that, all right, he was, like I say, captain, part share owner, so they sound like they were fairly well-heeled. Because, I mean, they weren't staying in any little flea bag hotels. No, they traveled fairly they first class. traveled fairly well yeah. when they went, it sounded like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have an unlimited budget either, otherwise no. they wouldn't be Yankee traders, would they? There you go. We yeah. had another phone call. Well, let's, let's talk to them. We'll go right to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Yes, good morning. This is Mary calling from Blue Hill. Hi, Mary. Sounds like you're good underwater. Morning. No, I'm not, actually. <laughs> I can see the water. Good. Uh, I just wanted to call and comment uh, about this book. Uh, it was making me think of my history. Uh, I am great to see fourth great-granddaughter to one of the sea captains of Brooksville, who was one of eight uh, in a family of ten, all of which were sea captains. Uh, so my great-great-great-grandfather was John Payne Tapley. And Brooksville was an incredible area for very much what Millbridge was known for as well. They put out an incredible amount of uh, ships during that same West Indies uh, trade era. And Captain Lee Kane Smith of Brooksville, who probably is a familiar entity to Boat Talk folk, uh, put together, I haven't read it myself, but he's put together a compilation of history of Brooksville's boat industry, which sounds very similar to, uh, again, what you're talking about regarding Millbridge. Neat. It's all it's all connected, you know, and and it's what we're talking about this morning is right. history, basically. Especially mm-hmm. interesting. Any any of these, you know, like you, you know, have this story and you come from a family like that. What's written down? What might they have that you know can keep that all that knowledge and that information out there and going? Yeah. Do you have any pictures or letters or anything like that from your? Uh, I don't. I, I think uh, Captain Lee has 
gathered some, but me personally, our family does have uh, a diary that was kept by my grandmother who married John Payne Tapley. She was Emily Wasson, also Brooksville, uh, and she and John married in 1864. In uh, the fall of that year, they set sail, and he urged her to accompany him, and she did, and under one condition, and that was that she could bring her melodeon. I don't know if anyone knows that it's just a small, um, very old uh, type of piano. And so he brought it, and it now lives in the Brooksville Historical Society, and you can tell that that is indeed it because it has uh, woodwork that would have fastened it to uh, the deck of the ship. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Wow. Yeah. So she did keep a diary, and um, it's, it's really, it, essentially what it was was a collection of letters that she didn't mail, couldn't mail, um, but simply wrote to her family and just kept them and gave them all upon a return. But it just gathered up the feeling and lifestyle and just everything that they were experiencing as really as sort of objectively as she could. Um, Nate, uh, Sweet Olive, which is a modern Joel White design, there uh, some folks... Uh, fix that up to sail around the world and they installed a keyboard on one of the bulkheads and weren't she wasn't going without her keyboard either <laughs> nothing changes you know <laughs> can i uh recommend a book mary that kind of inspired me about all this it's uh thankfully two volumes too it's called uh, a, a day's work william bunting and uh you can find this at local libraries or bookstores they're uh pictures of uh people working uh from uh Main people working in and anywhere on in Maine, anywhere around the globe, uh, including at sea. Um, these are historic photos from like the Civil War until the early 1900s. And the uh, genius of this book is the captions, which uh, are immense and detailed to the to the level that he'll tell you not only what kind of ox it is in the picture but what the ox is thinking, you know? <laughs> and uh, it has some great uh, boat pictures in there as well. A day's work, William Bunting. And uh, again, uh, I just find them a priceless treasure. My, my favorite books, I keep buying them and giving them as presents. I don't actually own the, own the darn thing, but I recommend them highly. All right. Well, well thank you all so much. Yeah, thank you, thank Mary. You, Mary. Thank you, Mary. And we do have another phone call. Let's go right to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. Good morning. It's Michael. This is Jerry down in oh, Harrington. Jerry, how and are I'm you? really enjoying your program this morning. Jerry, how are you doing? Super. I super. know you up there. And uh, I wanted to give a few comments there. Uh, the Down East Museum of Natural History has a quilt that was done by Nancy Tracy on board the bark Ticolet on route to East India, 1876. 1877. Now, this uh, Nancy Tracy was uh, the grandmother to J. Hollis Wyman. Wyman blueberries, maybe? That's correct. Yeah. Actually, yeah. It, and uh, isn't that, Jerry, as you're, as you're going down in the Milberts, too, the uh, house there on the left, uh, the Wyman house, too, right? That's correct, That's yeah. Right. And the Down East Museum has got uh, a lot of Senator Wyman's always uh, oh, paperwork. And those all the ships, uh, books, and letters dating back to uh, 1869 to probably 1920. Jerry, I don't think I've ever visited the Down East Museum of Natural History. How would I find it? What's what do we got? Well, you know, that's a really funny thing because the Down East Museum of Natural History is basically a dream. Uh, Jerry's. <laughs> We're doing a lot of all, dreams. We're in show. favor of dreams. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's funny, isn't it? But uh, there's got all kinds of uh, artifacts and uh, all museum pieces, you know, that he's saving up to uh, start the museum. And it's, uh, like I said, a work in progress. And a big dream. (laughs) Sounds very interesting. Well, you start with a collection, though, don't you? That's right. Yeah. Fantastic. Jerry, thanks so much for calling well, in. Well, my pleasure, and like I said, you guys keep up the good work. WERU is a super, super station. Well, yeah, thank you. I'm glad to have it. All right. We'll take that kind thank of you, feedback Jerry. anytime. We are doing, speaking of WERU, it's community radio. We're doing boat talk this morning, and uh, the number here, if you'd like to call about anything or any time, the subject we're on or not, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. 
Um, as I said, world traders, you know, uh, bumping from here to there. Sometimes they'd uh, let a car go off and then look for another one, and, and business would be kind of dull. Maybe they'd take on some ballast and go try someplace else, but they got around. She uh, not only traveled the, uh, you know, the oceans, but she traveled across America a couple of times on train coming home from San Francisco. Yeah. But uh, one of my favorite parts here, if I could, uh, I've uh, edited it just a little bit if I could here. They got shipwrecked off of Guadalcanal. Right. In the old Illy there. And uh, there is, uh, she had just uh, started talking about how in these latitudes the charts are uh, not as, as you would uh, hope for. Partly because there's just so much damn ocean and partly because uh, around the equator here there's so much volcanic activity and, and what used to be an island might or might not be uh, there or what might used to be ocean might now be an island, you know. Might not be there at all. Yeah. Oh, he Ooh, <laughs> always uh, throwing those in. So anyway, they're uh, approaching the Solomon Islands and there's a passage that Dad could take that would save a lot of time and he says, eh, probably not. Let's go this way. It's dangerous enough. So uh, they are coming, and uh, from uh, drops of spray from the southern seas, Lucy Brown Reynolds, we were now approaching these islands, and a watch was kept night and day. If weather would only continue pleasant for a few days longer until the danger was past, but God willed otherwise, March 3rd, we were caught in a dreaded hurricane, which raged so frequently at the season of the year, with the winds blowing great guns dead ahead, the waves running mountains high and the vessel enveloped in a blinding, blinding cloud of mist and rain. Although we were in the tropics, the air was really chilly. The sun was so obscured that Father lost his reckoning and we were blown off our course on the morning of March 4th with the gale still raging. Land suddenly loomed up through the heavy mist close on our port side. As we were in the vicinity of islands, of the islands, this then must be one of them. After consulting the chart, Father found that the outer island was Guadalcanal. We were quite near shore, and but for our extreme danger, I should have enjoyed the scene as it was with grave faces all about me, uh, too, though, that I become subdued. The island was mountainous and covered with verdure to its tip. By 8 o'clock, we were fairly in among the islands, and there was no help for it. Presently, I heard a great commotion on deck. Orders rapidly shouted above the roar of the gale, men running quickly to, quickly to and fro, and ropes and cordage rattling. Jumping up, I looked out the window. The sight made me shudder. Close to us, so near that we just cleared it, was a long, low, wicked-looking reef with huge green waves curling and foaming around it as we swept quickly past. With a thankful heart that we still had a good ship under us, I sank down again and was soon deeply engrossed in my story. Just as I had re reached the most interesting part and was following the fortunes of the heroine with breathless interest, when crash, crash, bang, and then came a terrific shock and a sound of tearing, rending wood, I was thrown violently from the lounge to the other side of the stateroom. And then for one brief awful second in which I could hear the loud ticking of the clock, the vessel stood still, quivering with the shock, and then settled swiftly down under the, onto the hidden reef where she soon, soon began to bump with a terrible force. The scene was a wild one, enough to make a stouter heart than mine sink in despair, but I came of a race of soldiers and sailors, and young as I was, I bore up bravely. We had gone nearly over the rock and now stuck fast by the stern. It was a volcanic reef many feet below the surface and invisible. Every wave that swept under us sent us crashing down upon us. All around us was a boiling cauldron, which roared with the noise of thunder and sent spray flying in sheets across the deck. No boat could live an instant in that swirl of angry water. Our only hope lay in setting every stitch of canvas and driving the vessel off the reef. If this failed, we were lost, and we were only five miles from a land peopled with savages far more cruel than the hungry waves. Isn't that fantastic? Who they ended up living with. For eight weeks, basically. <laughs> Their closest neighbors. And didn't eat them. That might eat you. Didn't eat them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they uh, ended up, again, uh, you know, you're in the island, you're in a monster storm, your rudder gets driven up through you. Dead reckoning. No no GPS. Exactly. No uh, little, as I call it, the uh, video game at the wheel there that gives you your instant position. And yep. You know, we'll give you a course and bearing to everything else, zooms in and zooms right. out. And so ultimately they realize, okay, they came off the reef, I think, but she sank shortly thereafter, yes. basically. And, you know, they're in boats, and now they're 
in boats among the islands. Where right next to the islands, but they're not going land. ashore. That's right. They don't dare. And at one point, you even, you know, people came back out, and you know they're right at the edge of Oh, people on shore wave. Hey, come on over yeah, here. Come on over. Oh, yeah, got a barbecue right. going. Come on down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. No, and they're thinking they might <laughs> sail back to Australia in their little open boats. Right. Yeah. So uh, they were picked up by a uh, small local trader, I guess it was. And, yeah, and a Scotsman and a schooner who, right. you know, was out there living on the island and yep. trading coconuts and stuff. And it was interesting because even him was like, all right, how has he lived so long amongst these cannibals? And it sounded like I got the gist, you know, to see if you feel the same way, Mike, that when some cases people landed, he sort of turned his eye and the people never really made it off the island at some point. I mean, they got off base basically, you know, another ship came and, and off they went. But some of the stories that uh, Craig, the proprietor there, tells about, uh, you know, the people the, uh, uh, that are on there and, and just their, their nature and all, it's like he was kind of tenuous, it sounded like, too. I got the flavor. Yeah, interpersonal relations can go so easily wrong at the best of times, let alone mm-hmm. with cannibals you don't share much in common with, you know? No, no, exactly. And, uh, uh, but on the other hand, I think why this uh, Scotsman was successful was it was a win-win proposition for everybody. He was profiting, and the and the islanders profited from having him around. Right. He probably wasn't too hard on on uh, you know uh, get, preaching morals to them. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, trying to straighten them out. Right. You know, I've come here from a better place, and let me tell you how you could be better too. Well, yep. there's no down east story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, they uh, get cast away there. They live on this island for uh, uh, what a couple months, basically eight, eight weeks, exactly. Before yeah. a ship comes and rescues rescues them. Yep. They uh, do become accommodated to their neighbors, but not really ever fully trusting of them. Not ever. And and, and it's, it's like Captain Brown knew also because in one part in the book, uh, Lucy went off with uh, Polly. You know, one of the little local native girls had this kind of wild look to her, and he pretty much told her, "Like, don't want you, you know, don't want you doing that." That again. might have seemed fun That's, to you, dear, yeah, but no, you don't no. want to do that. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, uh, yeah, they, they were ultimately back. You can go on the webs on the web, actually. You know, God bless the web these days, and you can search and find stuff about the island of Woogie off of Guadalcanal, like you say. Uji, uh, I'm sorry. Uji, U-G-I. U-G-I. Take your take yes. your pick, I guess. I'm not sure what's... How it's spelled. You know, the correct yep. way. But Wasn't familiar with it myself, but anyway. Nope. <clears throat> now, I have to uh, take you to task as well here as uh, we like to be fair and balanced and also, uh, you know, uh, firm and incisive on boat mm-hmm. talk. Um, we're talking about history here. These are people who, uh, you know, lived uh, before us and were our neighbors, uh, Lucy Brown Reynolds. Uh, the last picture of her in the book is uh, she has got a frown on her face. She's married a, a, a fellow from Minnesota whose right. family is into lumbering, and he's yep. a nice young lad with kind eyes and, yep. and no education but strong hands and a willing uh, will to work. He takes her out to Minnesota. They uh, live in lumber camps for a little while. She doesn't like that too much. Yep. And then back up in Millbridge, he becomes an alcoholic. Right. And uh, the story, I guess, here is that she wrote this book in 1896 when she was 26, to uh, maybe try to ease their lot in life and, uh, you know. Exactly. But exactly. there's no epilogue in the book here. What happens to them after that, Tom? No, uh, they ultimately went, uh, he, they left Millbridge, a, uh, bought a farm down in China, Maine. And, Captain uh, Brown, Captain her dad, Brown. retired from the sea and, yep. and bought a farm. Knew yeah. nothing about farming, just assumed nope. he'd, he'd enjoy it. But, you know, again, like, all right, so after they sank and his reputation at that point, even though up to that point he had a stellar reputation. Yes, very, very you know, uh, safely was, uh, uh, traveling the world, yeah. Yeah, and on good boats bought and, you know, built out in the Millbridge area, which, you know, by the way, also, which was I found very interesting, too, that the boats from the Sawyer shipyard and out of Millbridge in general were pretty much known world round. You could go to Hong Kong, Australia, or any of these. And you'd realize that, uh, you know, oh, you're in a, you know, Millbridge boat or a Sawyer boat or whatever, and they were good, known as good, sturdy, you know, seaworthy boats. And it says in these... Uh, Ship, I should say. Some of these uh, ports, so they'd come into port, there would be uh, ships from all nations there, British, yep. Scandinavian, you know, and the Americans would kind of anchor off by themselves, the British would have their own little uh, anchorage, mm-hmm. you know, and... And so I guess you could spot them all, all the easier. That's right. The Americans were uh, in the minority in a lot of these ports here, and it had a lot to do with with uh, maritime regulations, tax structures, all mm-hmm. you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. And uh, again, the British were taking over the trade. 
Uh, Captain Brown, I like to think he retired, uh, you know, just after the heyday of the trade he was in, basically at kind of the height of it. You know, I hadn't thought of that, but I guess timing-wise, it probably wasn't too bad. Wasn't a bad, bad thing, really. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so the they days of the China. square riggers were passing. Yeah. Now, interesting, in Millbridge, as you're coming down Millbridge, you just uh, pass the uh, Wyman House on the left there, and there's a little street there, School Street. And you know Washington Street. I'm sorry, Washington Street. You go down Washington Street, and the ha- second house in on the left supposedly is Lucy Brown's house where they grew up. Basically, that was Captain Brown's house on it. Uh, they ultimately went to China Main. Her mom, of course, uh, 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 Laura, is buried in Evergreen Cemetery in Millbridge. Uh, Lucy, I believe, I wanted to get out to China and track it down and try to find their farm, and all. I just haven't had to. On the side of uh, Lake St. George, maybe. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what lake hill, it's on down there. You know, yeah, it's, it's a lakeside farm somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, like I say, they were historic. They were people. They uh, lived and died right near us here. And and I tend to um, – I love history, and I always like to read the epilogue first. Mm. I like to know how things turn out. I don't know if that's cheating or anything, but that's <laughs> how I am. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, in the book you can see that last picture of her, and like it says, you know, you know she's showing a little bit more of the strain. Her husband had uh, become an alcoholic. Uh, she did write the book and was selling the book pretty much door to door in Millbridge, basically to you know help keep the family afloat a lot. And in Millbridge to this day, those uh, books turn up, and so do the little yes. things that. Uh, she talks so much about how Dad in every port would go uh, shopping for presents. Mm-hmm. You know, and in these exotic foreign ports, he'd bring back some, some pretty wild stuff that, uh, yes. you know, had great value but could be bought very cheaply. And yep. she was always getting all these really cool presents and stuff. Yep. And these things lurk around, too. I was at the uh, Peabody Museum in Salem, Massachusetts, for instance, has a huge collection of of just that kind of artifact brought back from uh, ship captains all over the world, you know. Mm. I'm assuming those are rattling around the Millbridge area, too. Well, let's talk oh, about the absolutely. Millbridge Museum. Millbridge, uh, we're running out of time here. Sure. We've got to okay. jam the Millbridge Historical yeah, Society in. If you haven't been there in a while or or you haven't been there at all, I would highly recommend going. I mean, the Millbridge Historical Society, basically, they open for the season the first Saturday of June. Their normal hours in June and Saturdays are like 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock. Uh, July and August, they try to keep open on Tuesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. There's a lot of great pictures, great history, uh, tools that were used, you know, in building a lot of the boats out of the Millbridge area on it. And like I say, the book is available there always, as well as right next door at the Cinnamon Stick, another great place to visit when you're in Millbridge. So, you know, make it a destination. You come out for the day, you know, pretty drive up the coast, pretty town. And, uh, and it's also, the book is also available online, either at your favorite bookseller or uh, at uh, lulu.com, which is the publisher. It's self-publishing. That's a whole story in itself. lulu.com slash drops. And without trying to hurt sales too much, um, I found a copy at the Ellsworth Library, and uh, you can request a library to get you any book in the world, and they will get it mailed on an interlibrary loan. You have to pay postage. You read it, and you give it back. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Perfect. We're running out of time for Boat Talk here. We're right in the corner. Amy's going to play the theme music in a minute, but the phone's ringing. And, uh, well, I think we should also mention some of the other good marine museums, too, while we're on oh, that yes. subject. The Penobscot Marine Museum, of course, down yes. in Searsport. They have a new director a year or so ago. Yeah. We'd like to get him on at some point. And, uh, That's you a know, great place. It was a good one in Northeast Harbor, right at the old firehouse. Yep. And, the uh, main marine museum down in Bath. Yep. That's where uh, down the old Seal Shipyard. You can do some great research yeah. there in the Kennebec River. Was somebody on the phone after all? She's no, shaking her head. No. Let's uh, talk about boat uh, websites real quick. We have one uh, boattalk.org where we uh, archive these shows. A little bit of information. We have a continuing ambition to crank it up. I'm uh, thinking of adding a whole book locker, uh, you know, book list in there among yeah. other things and. Uh, the, Millbridge Historical Society, they have a website. Yes, millbridgehistoricalsociety.org. Uh, like I say, there's a virtual lobster trip out there that's kind of fun to take, and the uh, book is available out there online through them also or in person. Yeah, I'd like okay. to have you in person, actually, because it's, it's a fascinating museum. Lots yeah. of neat stuff. And we'll see if we can uh, link to that in the webby way that uh, those, those things happen there. Amy is uh, giving us all the wrap-up signs here. She hasn't played the music yet, so it's not to- Well, now it's over. Here it comes. <laughs> yeah, once you start. Boy, we like doing boat talk. It's just an embarrassment of riches. It's yeah, good fun. Uh, you know, right as I told Tom, it'd be a good time and go fast. And I guess yep. I was right absolutely. again. Absolutely. Guys, yep. thanks so much. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, our pleasure. Glad to have you, Tom. Second Tuesday every month. And, uh, you know, 
In the meantime, Jim Bahush is coming up with music on the wing next and uh, the whole WERU day to stay tuned for. As we say hello to our friend Schooner Fair. Talk is made possible in part by the Red Fern Boat Company of Hancock County. Since 1982, offering maintenance, storage, and restoration for powerboats and sailboats. Also offering dockage on Mount Desert Island, redfernboat.com.